Mr. Bear's Violet Hour. I'm Mr. Bear, here with you in October on the full moon, known as the Hunter's Moon, uh, also called the Falling Leaves Moon, also called Dying Grass Moon. Uh, you get the idea. It's fall. Things are are quieting down, hunkering down, preparing for winter. Uh, you know, if you're a squirrel, you're busy. Uh, running around, digging up, trying to find as many nuts as you can, um, that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope, uh, hope everybody, uh, has plenty of nuts in their pantry and, uh, ready, ready for the, the colder weather ahead. And, uh, I have a treat for you tonight. Uh, no tricks, just treats the show. Uh, those little Halloween jokes since, you know, it's October, Halloween's coming up. Uh, I'm going to be reading to you um, from Leah Enksman's novel, Out Front the Following Sea. And this is a preview um, since this book is coming out in January, but you can pre-order it. And uh, I'm just going to read a little bit, uh, a chapter from it to give you a taste Um but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. In 1689, an Englishwoman branded for witchcraft must decide which side she's really on and how far she will go to save the life of a French sailor charged with treason in this action-packed historical epic. Out, from, out front the following sea is a historical epic of one woman's survival in a time when the wilderness is still wild Heresy is publicly punishable, and being independent is worse than scorned. It is a death sentence. Sounds pretty exciting, right? So uh, why don't we uh, just jump in? I'm going to read you chapter two. Chapter second, in the bleak midwinter. And thou away, the very birds are mute. Or, if they sing, tis with so dull a cheer that leaves look pale, dreading the winter's near. William Shakespeare Ruth started awake. Grandmother's cough proved the walls useless, and she called out for her son, Ruth's father, in breaths that caught nothing. Early yellows sliced through the slats. First morning in a month that the clouds had lifted. Ruth dragged herself from the bed, and the twisted roots of her body burrowed, planted into place, unable to lift, upward, outward, until Gran coughed again, and Ruth jerked upright as if chained to Gran's breath while it left her. The rags from Ruth's mattress padding had been removed and wrapped around the reeds in Gran's bedding, cushioning the sickly woman above the oil pan that sat beneath her bed, needing new flame. 
Ruth's mattress now comprised nothing but raw banded sticks, one top layer of cloth, a few wraps of failing twine. She was sore and had slept little, the last two weeks having a cold to them too stinging for sleep, even by February standards. The dirt floor didn't welcome her stockinged feet. Her cloak draped ineffectual. She shuffled to the hearth, prodded the remains of the fire with an iron, and watched sparks shoot in bursts, landing without promise. The cold felt solid inside her, firm, immovable, and it met a winter egg that she dismissed out of necessity to move forward. Every joint pleaded against it. She posited a crucible of water to boil, then set to dressing for winter. Layers of skirts, aprons, several shifts beneath her low-waisted bodice, a hooded woolen cloak, bundles of stockings. More grunts and writhings than a barnyard beast. When finished, she couldn't bend to lace the calf-high boots that she wished she'd put on first. She removed the draft cloths wedged under the front door and lifted its wood bar. Wind keened through the trees, and when it changed at once to a low howl, it stung her cheeks like a snapping gut-whip, and she low-howled back, hurled away from the door. Her ribs seemed to freeze to her lungs before she got to the closest cedar with her wedge. With one hand she pulled her apron into a net, and with the other she shaved the wet bark into the net with the wedge until she had enough for kindling. So cold she couldn't feel her toes in her worn boots. She slogged to the woodpile and reached to brush ice from the wood. Nettles tore through her arm. Her ignored sickness racked her with lightheadedness. She finally knew its identity and felt the collar coat the roof of her mouth. She let out a loud, Aye! to get her adrenaline pumping, then swooped and cupped a log to her chest one-handed. Back within the house, she removed her wet layers, her stiffened fingers uncooperative. Inside was no warmer than outside. Everything was damp. Puddles came in under the doors and onto the windows ledges. The hot water scarce hissed. She dropped down in front of the hearth and cradled the log, laid it so carefully against the weak flame to dry one side of the wood slowly. But the dampness was too much. The log quelled the infant flame like a wet blanket before she could even retrieve the kindling. She lowered her head onto her forearms and stared. Her sickness flared in her, and she thought about how easy it would be to stop moving and freeze to the ground. From the morning room, Gran's wheeze filled the house, then collapsed, again collapsed, rose, collapsed, an eerie rhythm of death's footsteps. Ruth pulled herself to her knees, grabbed hold of the fireplace grate, and reached for the iron to poke for any lingering hot coals. A quarter of an hour later, despite the new log's wetness, a budding flame was nursed to health. Eventually, the crucible boiled with melted snow. Ruth sat at Gran's bedside and soaked hot calico into a wooden bowl for the woman's clammy head, then readied a droplet of mercury to dot the woman's tongue. I remember at your age, in Woodbridge, Gran grasped her granddaughter by the wrist, 
The woman's eyes were sunken like dark cherry pits, strikingly contrasted against saggy eyelids of old linen. Jowls, rich of age, laid against her neck in one continuum. You've never been to Woodbridge. You're thinking of my mother. Gran shook her head. I do not know your mother, child. Ruth sighed and forced a patient smile. She married your last son. Why has he nay come? Ruth studied the flower print on the ewer. The blue porcelain came from the old country. The flowers not native here. Their blossoming colors an insult to the season's starkness. The spot of life deadened grand by comparison. Nothing but death flourished in a New English winter. Who will take care of you? Grand said. I will, Ruth replied flatly. The old woman winced at the application of a new hot cloth to her forehead. Her mind trailed beyond the shutter cracks, and Ruth knew where it went. That path that led to the false hope of the harbor, Grand's mind walked it too. Pray then, the elder whispered. Praying makes no more of an end to this than discussing it. Owen will be back in spring to see you. You'd like that, wouldn't you? He will take you to his mother in Fairfield, in Connecticut Colony. You do remember Rosalie. Your mother. No, she's not my mother. Rosalie Townsend, Captain Townsend's wife. Your Captain Townsend's wife? Oh, heavens, how dreadful a prospect that would be, Ruth snorted. Rose is Owen's mother. He'll take you to stay with her until you get better. Along the Long Island Sound, on a bowery near the water. It will be good for you. Ooh, that's too hot. Ruth pushed the woman's hand from the cloth. It's not that hot, so stop. You're freezing. You look... You should see how you look. The woman chuckled, then coughed. Her chest heaved beneath the weight of it. Where is my son? He hasn't come for me. He's not here now. Ruth felt the fever swell inside her. Her father hadn't been there for a decade. You won't see him. He won't be coming. Who will take care of you? I will. But who will chop the wood? I'll chop wood. Gran, please. She faced away and whispered to herself, I always chop the wood. Always. The elder closed her eyes and nodded reluctantly and fell into sleep. Ruth retreated into herself, maddened. Color drained from her eyes and cheeks and hands, from the wallpaper on the one wall that had it, from her fingers, clutching cloth that felt neither warm nor cool. The candles flamed like a tarantella, and her dancing inside it and around it and in it and around, the bubbling of a boiling crucible, the howling wind. Stoke the fire, stir the pot, Mash the peas, heat the kettle, wet the cloth, chop, slice, wrap, heat, cook, sweep. Dizziness overcame her, and her forehead burned, throbbed. She stood to her feet, but her balance gave way. The sudden motion swept blood from her spinning head. Her body crumpled against the wall, where she slid down to the cold floor into dark.
That was Spare Animals with North Shore. Ruth awoke in a fever spell with metal in her throat, her body itchy hot and chilled. A crawling like sumac spread beneath her skin. She peeled her face from an icy pile of vomit that had frozen to the floor, to her hair and clothes. The fire was out and appeared to have been dead for at least a day. Ice crystals formed around the front door, and a cold vapor rose from the iron gate around the fireplace, winter's breath. The room stood so frigid she could hardly breathe in it. She heaved herself up along the frame of the doorway and moved toward the hearth, bracing herself on chairs, the blood flow returning in tingles. Water dripped down the chimney and dampened the logs and kindling beneath it. The pieces of char linen from a wooden box were wet too, a layer of water sitting in the bottom of it. She blew against the kindling and char and strips of flax toe nesting until her head floated languidly back from the effort spent, but the nest still wasn't dry enough. She smashed her knuckle-brant steel striker at a sharp angle against jagged flint until her knuckles went red with rogue strikes, and she watched the sparks evanesce into nothing. It took twenty minutes before the char cloth caught a spark. Ruth gasped in disbelief and almost put the little flame out with her burst of breath. She sucked in, then blew against it steadily, lowly, for ten more minutes before the flax toe was dry enough to take the flame. Another ten minutes of steady blowing, and the cedar shavings finally caught. Then Ruth could fan the flame carefully with a bellows until the logs were dry enough to catch. She felt her fever at full pitch. It afflicted, but at least she could feel it. The water eventually boiled. Then Ruth carried the bowl to the boarding room and stared at the ice crystals that had formed around Gran's nose. Her body, now a jaundiced yellow that had been a pale pink, lay still. Ruth leaned closer to Gran's face and could see the tiniest breath rising from the sick woman's mouth. Gran, we need help. We need someone to help us. Gran's fragile voice returned. Where is your father? Ruth let out an unexpected, violent, dry heave. Her stomach empty, vision blurred, hands sweaty from sickness, body recoiling from the throat burn. He's dead. He's been dead for near ten years. My son? Hoarsely. Dead. The word sounded like someone else saying it. Her eyes scanned for something to throw, to break. She clutched the bedpost and thought she'd rip it loose from its moorings. He is dead. They're all dead. She got up from the bedside, ambled down the hall and bundled. Her head spun, but standing in the doorframe, she could no longer hear Gran's faint breathing, and this galvanized her. Do you remember Reverend Morgan? I'm going to get help from Reverend if he will help me. Please, please hold on, just a pit or longer. It will be spring soon. She stared at her unresponsive grandmother, then forced herself to move toward the door. If she approached the reverend, he'd have her head on a pike. If the town folk learned about Gran... But it had to be done. She swallowed and grabbed the wooden maul from the hearth hook. 
Heavy winds ripped the door from her, and she labored to close it behind. The cold numbed her fingers and toes within minutes. She made her way to town through drifts near to her knees, and each step slowed her down so that it took her an hour to get there. She eventually found Shrewsbury deserted, its families tucked inside their daubed homes. The tips of the Dutch colonials no longer look like mountain peaks, but knives thrust into the gray carcass of the sky. Carts and wagons and mobile sheds were winterized in heavy burlap and pressed against the homes like scared children to mother's thigh, so coated in snow they were nearly invisible in the white. Ruth knocked at the back of the meeting house until Reverend Morgan's new apprentice, John Crawford, pulled open the door and stared at the unkempt figure before him. "'Good day, Apprentice Crawford,' Ruth curtsied clumsily, her body bending poorly in the cold. "'I am in need of Reverend Morgan, please.' "'You appear ill. Are you sick, miss?' His voice was without urgency while he eyed her maul. "'Miss? Could he really not yet know who she was?' "'It will pass.' His calmness irked her. She thought of her appearance, how much better her prospects could be with the young man if she looked presentable, pleasant. "'Go get married.' There were far worse things than being the wife of a future reverend, but she rid herself of the notion." One word, and Crawford would learn of her, and that would put an end to that. I'm Ruth, she hesitated. Minor. There was the word. Just mention of the name sounded like a curse to her. As soon as that name got back to the reverend, help would no longer be offered by his naive apprentice. Her only hope then would be to speak to the reverend face to face, to plead for his mercy for her grandmother a woman who'd once been a cornerstone of the town. "'Please, my grandmother is dying. Might you come yourself?' "'Mistress Minor, I shall inform Reverend Morgan, and will set out for your home immediately.' Her face drooped. "'Please, hurry, I beg you.' He shut the door, leaving her to stand in the snowbank as a precaution. She didn't blanch. The snow fell in fat, quick flakes and piled around her. The white blinded. With each breath, she was reminded of the sickness that squeezed her lungs but didn't reach her outer limbs. She tried to flex her toes but couldn't. The boot nails in her worn soles poked through to her heels, and her feet squished in numbing water. The minutes passed, and she thought the ground had swallowed her up to her shins, where feeling began again. She gripped the mall and glanced over her shoulder. When Crawford reappeared, he opened the door only enough to press his mouth against the crack. Reverend Morgan is not in, he said. But you just went for him. He does not wish to speak with you. Is he not in, or does he not wish to speak with me? Yes. Yes? Please go, he whispered. You're turning me away? What wrong have I done? She lodged her foot between the door and the frame and didn't feel the slam. Please go, he repeated, and nudged her foot loose of the frame and closed the door between them. Apprentice Crawford, I beg you. She pressed a hand to the door as if she could reach through the barrier. It is not for me that I ask. It is for my grandmother, Helen Minor. She's a humble, God-fearing servant of the Lord, sir. 
She was a founder of this colony, was a midwife to half the folk in this town and their children after that and after that. Please go, Crawford's voice was muffled through the door now. Helen Miner has always attended this church. She is ill. She helped your needy when she had nothing herself, made food and clothing for your poor. You ought repay her. At this, Ruth heard the door of the meeting house barred from inside. The clicking sound of Hippocrates' hasp echoed loudly in the dusk. Looking up, she saw the foreboding figure of Reverend Morgan through the oiled linen windows, backlit by candle glow, and her indignation overcame her. She shook her maul at him. Reverend Morgan, I willn't go. I know you hear me. God will damn you for this. Come down from your cowardly tower. But the reverend's figure moved away from the window, and Ruth stood alone. She waited, but the door didn't open. Her ears tuned to the whirring wind, one lone horse's whinny, the latch clicking over and over in her mind. Her lips quaked with shivers. Is that it, then? You will not come? You will not aid one of your flock with your blessed healing hand of God? She turned toward the street. The center of town stretched before her, empty and quiet. Poles struck the sky, naked of lanterns. The windmill that loomed in the distance was bogged in snow and couldn't rotate, rocking in place too shallowly to dislodge drifts from its propellers. Then damn your God, she screamed in a cry that bounced against shop windows and candlelit homes. Damn your false God! Only quiet returned. Who will help her? She is dying. She has clothed you, fed you, dripped for you those candles you're burning, made bedclothes which bundle you. Who will come? She heard shutters snapping, furniture sliding behind doors, wood bars dropping into hooks. Hasps bolting home throughout the streets from one side to the other, reverberating off the dampened homes. Then damn you all! Her fingers curled into a fist at her side, breaking open the damaged skin. You fear me? You condemn me from your pedestal? It's you that hath sentenced the innocent to death this night. Sinners, all of you! Her voice grew hoarser with each breath. You think I am a witch? This you call me? Then which I am, I'll be that devil conjurer you must blame for your deaths and poor crops and sick children. You want to burn me? Come and get me. I'll curse you as the witch you've made me, all of you, in your tight houses. Curse you. Curse your children and their children. Curse your Bibles and your cattle and your goats and your fields. Silhouettes filled the windows of homes. The ticking of the windmill as it stuck in place beat its rhythm into her head, her heart. Might your candles go out and your flint disintegrate to flakes. Might your yeast not rise and your beds be infested with lice and your roofs all leak and your mules run off to Woodbridge. Might savages and Quakers plague this town and burn your church to ashes. Curse you! Curse you all! Gasping for breath. She fell to her knees in the snow, diaphragm pulsing.
That was Spare Animals with Werewolves of Kenosha. Ruth hauled herself through the door of the stillhouse two hours later, exhaustion coroneting her head. All lay quiet, save for the dwarfed fire toward which she moved, then buckled, resting her head against the hearth wall. She squeezed the bellows to bring up the flame. As she thawed, sharp sensations shot through her hands and feet, and she found herself whimpering like an injured puppy. When she removed her boots, her stockings stuck to her feet like a second skin. Beneath the bondage of the wet socks, her toes were spavined with red, dull yellow-gray, and white spots surrounding swollen tissue and blisters. Piece by piece, she took off her soggied articles, her hands not recognizing the feel of buttons or laces. She was thawing out, a misery unlike anything she'd ever known. She crawled to the pantry for mustard seed and ground wheat and mixed it on a cloth with water from the floor puddles. She laid the poultice over her red feet, and when dark fell, she slumped with it until the mustard plaster burned her, then she pulled it off to find more blisters. Through the dark, she felt her way along the walls, hobbling on her freshly bandaged heels to the ledge containing the candlesticks. Feeling around for what was left of her supply, she found a taper and carried it to the fire. Each step took minutes. It had never taken her so long to light a candle, and she cursed the damn thing's necessity with every movement. She hadn't durst enter the two quiet boarding rooms since her return. The stillness there bathed her in unease. But with her lighted candle, she drew up the courage to make her way to Gran's bedside and held the light to the cold white face. No tiny breaths stirred in the candle's glow. The air was heavy with a lulling static, and Gran's body lay still in it, her hands folded across her chest, her wrinkled lips turned up at the corners, her heart and suffering having stopped. Ruth's lip quivered, and she took the candlestick and the heavy comforter from the bed and walked back to the fire, staring into its flame. She extinguished the candle with thumb and forefinger, not noticing her burned fingers left pinched too long over the smoking wick. The next morning, beads of sweat gathered around her hairline and it soaked through the cloth at her armpits. For the first time in days, her hunger returned. There were canned jams, prunes, peas, dried figs, and mashed cornmeal, but little of each and little else. The pantry boasted boiled cookies and fruit and nut jumbles left from autumn, neither of which would be sustaining. But seafood could not be acquired until the waters broke for fishing. Breakfast would have to settle for jam, boiled dried cedar leaves, black coffee. Supper would be tasteless pea mash. She was out of fresh salt. Ruth set the kettle to boil and a pot to soak the salt-cured dried peas until supper, then bundled again. She would harvest the pea salt from the water after it boiled dry, 
but she craved something heartier. Her feet throbbed, and exhaustion had weakened her. She ate in silence, prolonging the inevitable, taking ample care to finish the last drop of her coffee, to cherish its company like a visitor. Stiffly laced and buttoned, she could scarce bend down to where Gran lay in the morning room bed. Ruth took a comforter from the top of a trunk and worked the blanket beneath the feet and backside of the body, the dead weight difficult to lift. When she had the flock under the body, she pulled it closed and grabbed hold of the bottom ends with Gran's feet. She rolled the body, inch by inch by inch, until it dropped from the bed. The dead woman's head cracked against the floor, the sound skeletal, primal. Ruth cringed and dragged the covered body through the house, stopping every few steps, her sickness still weakening her. At the mudway, she took two iron-jaw leg-hold gin traps from their wall mounts and dropped them down on the bundle. She managed to heave it through the door into the field past the woodpile, where she dropped the body into a large drift. She stood for a moment, cold but sweating, eyes to the woods that were brighter than usual, cast against the gleaming snow, then faced back. "'You ate all those sweetbreads, Gran,' she said aloud. Her own voice shocked her in the silence. It was then that she saw in Gran's sunken, gaunt face, for the first time, her father. She'd always held them so separate, so different they were. But now how they likened one to the other, how she saw in this face what her father would have looked like old, had Grace granted him time. She thought of being as close to his death age as to the years she'd known him alive, eight on both counts. She thought of outliving him, what a scar that would leave on the soul of a being. Two years junior to that, she would have already outlived her mother. Ruth's nose burned from cold snot, and she sucked it in and spat like she always chastised Owen for doing. Then she kicked piles of snow up over Gran's covered body, packed it all down. The snowy burial mound would have to suffice in advance of spring's thawed ground. The bird gin traps felt like anvils in her cold hands, but she carried them a distance away, hooked the chains around the horse pulls, and buried the stock bars in the snow up to the spring rivets. She stepped the steel jaws open with her feet, set the spring neck, then snapped the jaws back to the tongue and clamped the till. The iron stuck to her fingers when she touched it. A dab of jam and dried figs wouldn't attract much, but it was all she had to set on the iron plate. She kept her back to the crude stable all the while, knowing that Copernicus could not have withstood the snowdrifts up over his knees that blew in through the hay ledge, nor could she yet bear to face that awful truth, that she'd been unable to care for him too, trapped, alone, and for all his tremendous strength, helpless. Once back inside the house, the silence draped like a noose around her neck. There was no one now, human nor creature, and Gran, Ruth's last asylum from the town she'd cursed, was gone. All that was left was to wait for them to arrive, 
and it wouldn't be Keys Carol Zoon with his walking stick, and Betty Peter Zoon with her hands full of rotted parsnips. They'd come with torches and muskets and stones and appled faces. Would they hang her? Drown her? Tie her to a chair and lower her into the ocean? Lock her in the stocks or force her into the pillory? She feared her fate would likely be worse. They'd burn her alive in her own cabin. She looked about the house, pocked with dried vomit and discarded cloths. The room was in disarray, and she had few weapons with which to defend herself. Wincing, she stepped gingerly on her frail feet, holding herself upright on the bedstand as she worked her way back to the mudway. She took the last two iron-jawed gin traps from the wall mounts and headed outside to the path leading in from town. When they came, she'd be ready. But no one came. They couldn't get through the snow. For weeks, Ruth awaited the warmth of spring with the terror that the townspeople were waiting for warmer weather, too. The sound of the hammer was violent in the stillness when she pounded nails into new strips of wood on the bottoms of her boots, then chiseled down the edges with a whalebone file. She spread heated birch pitch into the seams and left the boots upside down to dry while she examined her foot. A wound along the big toe still blistered and refused to heal. She rinsed it and applied another mustard poultice. Her stomach growled, but all she had was a prune and fig pottage that she kept stretching with snow water. While she waited for her boots to dry, she packed her belongings into a trunk, taking stock of each item, selecting what she'd leave behind. What she couldn't carry, she would forsake to be burned. There wasn't much of value, but she only needed enough to purchase her safe passage to anywhere, anywhere else. Like a banshee wail, a shriek came from outside that sent Ruth staggering a few steps. It was followed by a monosyllabic bark and then another, and she righted her boots, shoved her bare feet inside, poultice and all, and grabbed her cloak and her maul in a flincher. She bounded out the door and toward the woodpile. At the stockhead of one of the traps, a red fox gnawed his foreleg and geckered at Ruth with ratcheting throat sounds. His hazel eyes caught her movement, and he stilled and laid back his ears and went quiet. She came closer, and he didn't move. Blood stained the white underbelly of his neck. She moaned sadly. Her heart lurched, and she looked away and brought the maul down on the bright red head. It was as merciful as she could make it. Snow seeped into her boots when she knelt. The poultice burned on her toes. She stabbed the flencher into his belly, slit up the gut, and reset the trap with the discarded organs. She lifted the fox and turned toward the house, then stopped. Somewhere near her was another set trap that she couldn't see beneath the snow. The ground was liquidy around her, and she felt the thaw coming. Carefully retracing her same steps, more difficult this time without her bounding stride, she made it back to the half-house with her kill. The mock meat tasted gamey and rough, but it gave her nourishment. She felt her strength return, 
as she finished the Kinnison fig pottage, licking the wooden bowl. With food in her stomach and the thaw upon her, she went back to the stable for a shovel, shuddering at the sight and smell of the dead disintegrating horse, then turned to face what remained of the mound where she'd left Gran a month before. There was not much left of the high snow, and the blanket was lifted open in its half-frozen corners, peeled back to reveal chunks of skin torn loose and hanging from the body. Ruth could see fleshy bits of limbs, toes, and strung-out organs where animals had eaten what they could uncover in the unproviding winter. She quickly looked away, choked down the bile that stung her mouth, and jammed the shovel into the barely softened ground, striking a piece of decamped bone. Hours passed. She'd scraped a foot and a half of hardened soil and could dig no further. Her arms drummed with taxation. She covered her mouth, chipped the body away from what remained of the snow, and unceremoniously dragged Gran into the shallow grave. She kicked the soil back over the top of the body until she realized there wasn't enough dirt. When Ruth gained nerve enough to look, Gran's body still peeked from under the soil. Ruth dropped the shovel and cursed it, then glanced toward the harbor. Mare's tails dappled the seascape in an otherwise vibrant cerulean sky. A solitary, blue-morphed snow goose dived for something and came up with a moving throat. The ships would be in soon. On the path that led to town, patches of brown poked through the snow, and her neck tightened. The snow couldn't protect her now.
Before dusk fell, she saw the torches. The town was restless, awakening with the thaw and the coming new year, and with the planting of the next crops. They were anxious to be rid of Ruth's curses over them. She figured word had spread about grand, the land, the forfeited quit rent. Two silver serving dishes, a set of four pewter spoons, some imported beads, and six full boats of cloth. This would have to do. She slammed the lid of her trunk, but it wouldn't click. Inside, her Bible protruded in the way of the clasp, and she sighed. She pulled out the tome, tossed it onto the bed, and the latch clicked as if the smith had newly fashioned it. Her blood raced when she heard the villagers' voices shouting closer. After finding a wedge to budge the trunk, she towed it, partially bolstered by a piece of wood, out the back door. It was a slow limp to the stable, but when she got there, she flung the door wide and battled with a hanging wooden sled to shake it loose from the pile of stacked metal prods, ropes, and tools that had once belonged to her father. She untangled the sled from the stable wall, then paused in the doorway to look toward the grave mound. Adieu, you farewell, Gran, she said. Copernicus, nodding. The animal's shape was hardly recognizable as a horse, the remains not much more than fragmentary. She squatted to lever the trunk onto the sled. She could make it the long way to the harbor, in and out of the woods at the foot of the marsh. They'd never see her, she reasoned. Then on the path in from town came the sudden snap of iron and a crack, a human howl akin to a wolf's, and she knew exactly where they were. The lights of torches came around the far side of the house, and she hunkered down and jerked the sled forward into the trees behind the stable. The rolling marshlands were frozen solid in some places and thawed soft in others, rendering smooth maneuvering of the sled impossible. She stopped frequently to push one side or the other out of a defrosted marshy rut. Emptied and fatigued, she looked toward the harbor to see that she'd only made it a quarter of the way across the meadow, sheltered by trees. She could still go back. The house was closer. 
But as she watched it, she saw the figures, the black smoke that rose from somewhere near them, shadows attached to angered voices. Animals rustled in the woods at the scent of fire, acrid, overmolded loaf mixed with that black char when it burned to the bottom of the flat pan, sour at the back of the nose. She pressed on toward the shore. Tying the sled's rope around her waist and hunching into a workhorse position, she sloughed across the uneven field, stopping periodically to wipe her drenched forehead, to flex out the pinch in her pain toe, then finally arriving in a blur of paradoxal fury and weakness at the far corner of the harbor. She panted and stepped to the counter of a makeshift crude customs house built on four oak stanchions with uninsulated wood slats nailed from post to post. The room was no bigger than a back house, and behind the counter, one immobile man leaned over a ledger, and Ruth approached him. I need to pay my passage. To where, he replied. He couldn't take his eyes from his ledgers, where he had scrawled custom records in accordance with the navigation acts, ensuring that merchants carried only goods that benefited English trade lines and were therein properly taxed for them. He shivered in the winter air that seeped through the undaubed wall cracks. To anywhere. He looked up. Alone? Aye. She stared at him, and he stared back. Is that the wrong answer? No, then, I won't be traveling alone. Who'll be traveling with you? My trunk. The teller did not relax his face. There's no passenger ships until the waters break. How long? The waters had broken. She knew it. Small rowboats were already starting adrift. Maybe two, three weeks? Hard winter. Maybe a month. No, that won't do. I can't wait that long. Got nothing for you. The teller stopped looking at her. What's that list on your ledger? A list of ships due for arrival. Put me on one. I got payment. Two silver dishes. There's no ships. God's teeth, I see them, Ruth shouted. On your list. He glared at her and would have walked away if such movement had been physically possible. Only freight can guarantee to break through them waters in the coming week. Freight, then. Can't go on a cargo catch without the captain's permission. That must all be cleared months in advance, in writing, no vagrants. Must meet an assurance of weight distribution after making certain that all passengers have a clean bill of health. What if we don't tell the captain? Why would I not tell him? Because you're a keen fellow, taking pity on a lone traveling female. No one takes pity on you, Mistress Minor. She paused. Her reputation had preceded her. Bribery, then? Certainly not. Well, then, how about simply to get rid of me? She hated to admit that having any exchange with another human being, even this one, was stimulating. She'd scarce heard herself speak for months. I'm not leaving until I have a ship. No ships. Ruth looked at his scribbled upside-down ledger. Sparrow. Her passenger slot is filled. She's only freight now. I will take freight. She glanced again at his list, straining to see the next ship name. Her pulse quickened. Primrose. Filled. Them passengers have had their places for months now, waiting for spring. Freight ships have little room for the wretched of the earth. But there's room for freight? He conceded with satisfaction. Plenty of room for freight, yes. God's teeth! 
Ruth slammed a fist down on the counter and grabbed the teller by the collar, pulling him against the desktop. I'll curse you to contract a deadly plague from hidden fleas and a cargo of fabrics that will wipe out your entire household and half this town and cause your children to die such horrible deaths they'll be... Stop! He wrenched free and pulled back. Don't you want me to leave this town? By all the might of God, yes. She smacked her pointer finger down on his ledger. Freight. Freight, he repeated, and penciled her in. She slid the payment bundle of fabric-rolled goods and one fox fur toward him. Fret not, there's no fleas. Then she limped from the stall to sit with her trunk at the far end of the beach, chilled, tired, and hungry, to wait. Not if I never hurt nobody Little dancing never killed no one But you first the rain to go forever Fortunes are none Then the jokes try to steal all your money And the devil went and made it seem To drown in the pain in the bottle When you were young You were young, you were hurting but when it's yours, you can't complain No such thing as the free you ride And you told me when you said That if I never hurt nobody Little dancing never killed no one But you first the rain to go forever Fortunes are none Then the jokes try to steal all your money And the devil went and made it seem To drown in the pain in the bottle when it was done, you were holding onto those who can't explain what to do with a bad life. But it's only when you said that if I never hurt nobody, little dancing never killed no one. But you first the rain to go forever, fortunes or none. Then the jokes try to steal all your money And the devil went and made it seem To drown in the pain in the bottle when you were young Not if I never hurt nobody Little dancing never killed no one But you first the rain to go forever Fortunes are none Then the jokes try to steal all your money And the devil went and made it seem That you drowned in the pain in the bottle You were young That was Spare Animals with Fortunes or None I guess it's time for a little mise. And on the menu today, I have a mini interview with our featured music, Spare Animals. And Spare Animals is a duo from Bristol, Wisconsin. They combine their love for indie rock, pop, country, and folk music into their own unique sound. And they were kind enough to answer some questions for the Violet Hour. One. 
What is your earliest memory of an animal? Liz's answer, my first dog, Sheba. Kai's answer, other than humans, my earliest memory of an animal was a sweet German shepherd named Baron that lived next door to my first house as a kid. Two, what is your favorite plant and why? Liz, roses, because they are both beautiful and symbolic. Kai, three are tied for first place. Cannabis, hops, and coffee plants. If you know, you know. Three. What is your songwriting process and creative practice like? How do you know when a song is finished? Liz. I'm always inspired by watching live performances. Usually a line or chord progression gets stuck in my head and I fill in the gaps. I know when a song is finished when I feel like I'm just trying to add something for the sake of adding something. Kai. After I find an interesting melody chord progression on either guitar or piano, I try to put a catchy melody over that. I'm a huge fan of tropes, so usually my lyrics are about something real serious, but done in an either sarcastic or satirical way. 4. What are your five favorite words associated with werewolf? Both of our five favorite words associated with werewolf are Kenosha, London, Lon Chaney, Silver, and Moonlight. With rabbit, adrenaline, motherhood, watership down, hops, cottontail. Skunk, claws, hidden, awaken, summer, youth. Five, if you were to draw a map of your current obsessions, what would be some of the landmarks and what would be buried at X? A map of current obsessions would include gorgeous views of nature, especially ones where we can enjoy a meal or drink. What you would find buried at X would be peace. Bonus. If you were a stuffed animal, what would you be? Liz. If I was a stuffed animal, I would be the family bear, Blue Baby. He was Kai's stuffed bear when he was a kid, and he was gifted to my middle child, Layla. I don't think I've ever seen a more loved stuffed animal. Kai. An elephant, because then I'd never forget. Oh, thank you so much to Spare Animals for sharing their music and thoughts. Uh, you can find out more about them at their website, spareanimals.com, and their music is available at spareanimals.bandcamp.com. Miss Mousy, it's Mr. Bear. Miss Mousy, uh, where are you? Uh, let me go look outside. Oh, there she is. Hey, Miss Mousy. Oh, hey, Mr. Bear. Uh, you found me. I'm uh, out here collecting acorns. Uh, yeah, I can see that. You've got quite a pile going there. Yeah, I know. I'm so excited. Um, did you know that acorns are edible? Oh, what am I talking about? Of course you do. You're a bear. Oh, yeah. Acorns and bears, we go together like, uh, like acorns and bears. Oh, 
Well, I've never had acorns before, um, so I'm really excited to try them. Uh, I've been reading about them, and and apparently they're all edible. But you know that doesn't mean they all taste good. Uh, but they're they're very high in tannins, and you have to get the tannins out. Um, well, at least at least people do. I don't know about about bears. You're probably fine. Deer are fine too. They they just eat them and don't seem to mind. Um, but anyway, I was reading um, about acorn coffee, which is what I'm really excited to try. Oh, acorn coffee. Uh, that sounds good. I've never made coffee out of acorns. Uh, does it have caffeine? No, no, no caffeine. Um, it's just the acorns. And I guess, you know, you can um, collect a bunch and maybe give them a couple weeks to, to dry because then they're easier to, to crack. I mean, you probably don't have that problem with your bare teeth, but... Um, uh, I think humans might find it uh, easier to use a nutcracker, and uh, if you just have a regular little nutcracker, I guess if you let the acorns dry for a few weeks, then they're easier to crack. Oh, that's that's a good tip. Uh, you know, or if you don't have a bear paw uh, or a nutcracker, you can use a hammer or a rock. Yeah, um, that's that's a lot of work for a little mouse like me. Um, you should probably remind your listeners, of course, that I am a two-dimensional hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism, and um, they should always do their, their own research, but I hope they get excited about, um, you know, all these things we talk about. Oh, well, I certainly get excited. Uh, acorn coffee uh, sounds, uh, sounds right up my alley. Uh, tell, tell, tell me more. Well, um, I guess once you crack open and get the the nut meat uh, inside, all you have to do is grind it up, you know, in a coffee grinder or a spice grinder, and then you can roast it on the the stovetop or in the oven, and then just make coffee with it. Um, Not in your coffee maker, but just, you know, old-fashioned, like just boil it in a pot um, and then strain it out and... uh, I'm just, I think it sounds delicious, and I'm hoping to get enough acorns um, so I can try it. Uh, and I mean, you know, there's other things you can do. Uh, you can make acorn meal and acorn flour and bake bread and cookies and make stews and uh, do lots of things. And But um, I don't know, they, right now the acorn coffee sounds like the, the easiest and the most interesting to me, so... Um, that's what I'm doing. Do you want to help me pick up acorns, Mr. Bear? Uh, sure, Miss Mousie. I- I'd love to help you gather some. Uh, that sounds like a really fun fall activity. Um, wonderful. Uh, well, you want to just grab that basket over there and um, let's get picking. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental... Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. 
And that's the show. Thanks so much for joining me in the Violet Hour. I hope you enjoyed the work of Leah Engsman and the music of Spare Animals. And don't forget, Leah's novel Out Front the Following Sea comes out in January 2022, but it is available for pre-order now. And you can find out more about Leah, about Out Front the Following Sea and how to pre-order and uh, read more of her wonderful work um, and find out about other projects she's involved in at her website, leahangsman.com. That's L-E-A-H-A-N-G-S-T-M-A-N.com. So I hope you all go out and look at the beautiful full moon and gather yourself some acorns and uh, I'll be back with you for the new moon in November. And until then, uh, take care and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.